Everywhere you turn these days, it seems like everyone is asking the question, what is a woman? And struggling to provide an answer. The question comes out of the pressures of the transgender agenda, but I think it's the wrong question. The question we should be answering is, what is a man? Because we don't answer that question properly, all the rest of this confusion flows from there. So let's talk. When the topic of men comes up today, the word masculinity is almost always presented with an adjective. The word toxic is attached to it. The culture talks about toxic masculinity as though it's a given, that that's just the normal state of affairs. In fact, that's what most people on the progressive left side of the spectrum think, that men are the problem. I've got a series of quotes here by some people whose names you've probably never heard of, but they all hold this view that masculinity is by definition the problem. A blogger by the name of Anthony James Williams has written this, women have a right to hate men. John Stoltenberg, an author of a book entitled Refusing to Be a Man, has said this, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Huh. Hugh Howey, a noted best-selling science fiction writer, says testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. And James Cameron, the director of the movie Avatar, he says testosterone is a toxin that you have to slowly work out of your system. You see, the assumption is that men are the problem, that the culture would be better if men disappeared, if women could be in charge and and men could be subservient. There are some ideas about men in our culture that are wrong. And before we can talk about what a man is, we need to talk about what a man is not. Based on the common presentation of toxic masculinity, I would submit, first of all, that a real man is not an abusive hedonistic narcissist. You see, there are men who behave that way. They're tough and they're proud and, and they're abusive. They treat women with disrespect, particularly if they happen to be married to them. They're bullies to their children and bullies to other people around them. But it, that flows out of this cultural idea that men are supposed to be coarse and crude and intellectually stunted. Some men play to that image and they think that they're being a real man when in fact what they are doing in their narcissism is they are expressing a sinful desire to have no accountability, to be adrift in the culture, not answering to anyone, not having to respect or honor anyone but themselves. That's a parody, that's a, a, a stereotype that is not a real man. You say, well, what is a man? Well, we could talk biology, but, but that's not what I wanna talk about today. A real man is not a narcissist. And men out there that are self-centered to the point of being verbally and emotionally and maybe even physically abusive in their own homes, um, 
you know, you better figure it out because that is not what it means to be a man. You're simply trying to avoid the accountability that comes with what a true man is supposed to be. Secondly, a man is not transgender. We have this idea that, um, that the transgender movement is a desire of men to be women. I don't think it, at its core that the heart of the transgender movement is a desire for men to be women. I think it's a desire by men to not be men. Transgender movement, uh, in many cases, particularly the, the man-to-woman side of the question, is a desire for lowered expectations. The desire to not have to be uh, competitive, to not have to be strong, to not have to be uh, forceful and independent. A desire to be cared for, provided for, to be pretty. A real man is not transgendered. By the same token, a real man is also not a passive beta. There are a lot of men who have abdicated the responsibilities that they should have in their workplace, in their home, maybe even in their church. They have abdicated the responsibility that men have to provide leadership in their personal sphere of influence. If transgenderism is a desire for lowered expectations, if narcissism is a desire for no accountability, then a passive beta approach to life is a desire for less responsibility. If I don't take the lead, if I don't make the decisions, if I don't have to, 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 to risk, if somebody else will do all those things on my behalf, then I don't have to carry the weight of leadership. A man that, that chooses that kind of passive existence, that's toxic masculinity. Not toxic in a way that does damage to other people, but toxic in a way that keeps the culture from surviving. Let me, let me tell you some statistics. There are millions of men right now in America between the ages of 25 and 54 who don't have a job and aren't looking for one. It's fascinating because we haven't seen this level of people out of work since 1940 at the end of the Great Depression. Now what we have is uh, the statistics tell us that unemployment is at almost historic lows, but the reality is unemployment only tracks those people who are searching actively for a job and haven't been able to yet find one. Unemployment numbers do not take into account the millions of young men who have quit searching and are content to sit home and play video games or, uh, or live off government assistance or live off uh, the provision of parents or a woman in their life. The reality is the United States cannot prosper until men, particularly men of working age, uh, begin to take seriously what it means to be a man. To be a man is not to be transgender, a desire for lowered expectations. It's not to be a passive beta, which is a desire for less responsibility. And it's not to be an abuser, a hedonistic narcissist, which is a desire for, for no accountability. Deadbeat dads fall into this category, a desire to have no demands on my time or my money. 
the parody, the caricature of masculinity, that's what's toxic. So what is a man? Well, first of all, a man is a provider and a protector. You say, well, uh, maybe I'm not married. That's fine. The roles of provider and protector start with a wife and expand to children, but that is also, in some degree, the role that a man plays within civilized society. Our participation in the civic good of our culture is an expression of this desire uh, to provide, to protect what is best uh, for the nation in which we live. A man is to, is to be one who uh, embraces the weight of the responsibility of being a leader in his own sphere of influence. We shrug our shoulders these days and say, well, I, I'm not a leader. I don't, I don't. You are a leader. It may be a small sphere of influence. You may not be president of the United States, but you were created, you were designed to provide this kind of leadership in the sphere where you have influence, to provide and protect. It is, by definition, the created order, the responsibility that God has given to men. In that role, oftentimes when there's family life, this, this impulse for providing and protecting plays out in the idea that a man is an involved parent. We've bought into a lie that says that children is the uh, traditional province of women, that the man just works and the children are to be raised by the wife. The problem is when we say that's the traditional province of women, at best, historically, all we can mean by that is that's the traditional province of women in our generation, but it has not always been so. In fact, research into parenting manuals and uh, parenting advice in the 19th century, uh, things such as uh, child rearing books and, and sermons about family life, typically in the 19th century, parenting advice was addressed not to mothers, but to fathers. The father was seen as the one with primary responsibility for the care, the protection, but also the upbringing of the children. The mother was clearly uh, a significant partner in the process, but we have, uh, we have destroyed that natural, biblical, God-given dynamic of the family by disconnecting men and giving them permission to... Uh, to produce children, but not to be significantly involved in raising children. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, actually said this, when a father washes diapers and performs other mean tasks for his child, mean meaning uh, simple, uh, when a father washes diapers and performs other mean tasks for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, he should remember that God with all his angels is smiling. You see, we can see what a man is not. A man is not most of the things that our culture assumes a man will be. Either having a desire to be a woman, or a desire to be a weak, passive man, or a swing to the opposite extreme of brutality. That's not at all the case. A man is a provider, a protector. He is a leader who is involved deeply 
in the daily life of his family. He is a servant leader. Jesus describes himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Men have lost the sense of our obligation, the responsibility we have in protecting, in providing, in nurturing. The responsibility that plays out is that we serve our families. We serve the people who meet with us in our church. We serve uh, the leadership that we work under in our workplace. It is not a mark of weakness. It is a, an element of true masculinity, of, of being a godly man. When it comes to this idea of, of what a man is, he's not only a protector and a provider, an involved parent and a servant leader, but he is um, devoted to his walk with Jesus Christ and by implication, his involvement in his local church. Let me give you some statistics that may completely catch you off guard. Recent research shows that evangelical family men who attend church regularly are the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. Statistically, we find that evangelical men are the most likely to express affection and praise to their children. They're the most likely to spend activities with them, spend time in activities like playing with them, reading to them, and taking them to, to sports practice. They also rate highest in practicing discipline, supervising homework, enforcing bedtime, and setting limits on screen time. The statistics also show us that the wives of evangelical family men rank highest in terms of saying that they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. These couples are less likely to divorce. They have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any demographic group in the United States. Sociologist Brad Wilcox wrote in the New York, New York Times recently, this is an interesting statement. He says, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. Now we've been told by probably the most quoted statistic in America that Christian families are just as likely to divorce as non-Christian families, but the, the, the statistical evidence doesn't actually bear that out. The reality is, while that statistic is widely quoted and, and assumed to be true, uh, when you dig deeper into the research, what we discover is that when you take church-going men and you divide them into two categories— the categories of men who are regularly in church, who lead their family, who are serious about their faith and their walk with Jesus Christ. And then you have another group of those who casually attend church, sometimes going with their family, but have no significant uh, walk with Christ otherwise. It's a fascinating division because what we discover is that those who are most engaged in church with their families are in fact less likely divorce, to divorce, and have the lowest abuse rates of any demographic group in America. But nominal Christians, the ones who are occasionally in church but not serious about their faith, this is a real stunner. Where committed churchgoers have the lowest numbers of divorce and abuse, 
nominal Christians report the highest rate of divorce and abuse, even higher than secular couples who don't go to church at all. In other words, the most violent husbands in America are those who have a tiny dose of religion, but no serious walk with Jesus Christ. It seems that nominal Christian men hang around the fringes of the church world where they hear just enough about headship and submission to think that they have the right to, to manhandle the other people in their lives rather than really seriously coming to understand the biblical meaning of those terms. It's like they skim the headlines of the news, but they never actually read the articles. They cherry-pick Bible verses to justify their attitude of male superiority and entitlement when, in fact, they have absorbed their lifestyle more from the secular guy next door than the real image of God's design for them that's presented in the Word of God. The reason the church is so important is because the church is the last place in America where men can go to find other men who are interested in topics like family life and marriage. You won't find those conversations at work. You won't find them at the sports stadium. You won't find them at the local tavern. It's in the church where men learn from other men how to be real men. The bottom line here is that Christians have a practical answer to our culture's war between men and women. We've just got to get out into the public square and stand for the biblical model. What is a man? He is not any of the things that our culture draws pictures of as caricatures. A real man is a protector, a provider, uh, an engaged husband and parent, a servant leader. And he is serious about Jesus Christ. All other men, they're just playing games. Our culture can't figure out what a woman is, but we have no future as a nation if we can't figure out what a man is. This is Truth Currents. Thank you.